everyone. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. We're the high school ministry at the church at Rocky Peak, and we'd love for you to join us in person on Saturday nights at 530. For more info about the ministry and upcoming events, find us on Instagram at HSRevolution. We hope you enjoy this time of teaching from God's Word. Yo, what's up, Revolution? Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Tim. If we've never met, I'm the high school pastor here. I am so excited that you guys are here. We're getting ready to jump into God's Word, continuing this series in James uh, that we've come back to. And so uh, I'm super stoked to get there. One thing I want to highlight, the announcement team did a great job of touching on. I just want to mention that Encounter Service is coming up. It's going to be super fun. There's going to be all sorts of ways that we're celebrating this milestone at our church. There's, there's going to be treats available and encounter. If I've learned anything from being a parent is that treats are very motivating. And so uh, I really want to make sure that you guys know uh, that, that you are not just welcome there, uh, that that frequently when we have these services coming up, uh, the people who are planning them come to me and ask to make sure that we offer that invitation to you. And so the church wants you guys to be there. You guys are wanted at that service. You guys are a part of this church. You're not just like younger people who one day will be a part of the church. Like one thing that we believe is that once you come to Jesus and give your life to Jesus, that you are a part of the family, you are a part of the church. Uh, And so we want you guys at that service, celebrating what's going on, hearing about the plan for this next year, it's, uh, it's super important. So we're going to be doing that together. We're going to be sitting together as high school, and we would love to see you there. Uh, let me pray for us real quick, and we will jump into our time in the Word. Jesus, we thank you um, for your love and your grace that allow us to gather here. Um, we thank you that, that you've drawn us to this place, that no matter what it is that we're coming out of, no matter what this last week was like for us, uh, whether we Uh, came back from camp and had an awesome week, came back from camp and had a terrible week, didn't go to camp and just had a mediocre week this last week, no matter what happened, God, that whatever it is that finds us in this room, that we're here because you designed it so that we were here. And I ask that as we open your word, that you would speak clearly to us, that you would show us where in our life that you want us to be taking steps uh, to, to be entering into the life that you've made possible by your death and your resurrection. God, would you speak clearly to us during this time of teaching? In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. So we are in this series right now that we are calling uh, Live It Out. And so we are, we are looking in the book of James. We're actually in the second half of the book of James. Earlier last year, we did the first half of the book of James. Uh, and the book of James uh, is a, a book written by a man named James, which is why it's called James. Uh, James was Jesus' biological half-brother, right? So he's the, the, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph. Uh, he grew up with Jesus as his older brother. Uh, he grew up and did not believe that his older brother was who he said he was. As you can imagine, if any of your siblings was claiming to be God and the son of God and the promised king, it would be a little hard to believe if that is a person who, you know, you fought over toys with or whatever, or whatever their, their situation growing up like was. Uh, and so James didn't, it didn't connect with him in the beginning. Uh, we have examples in the Gospels where Jesus' mom and brothers are showing up to like pull Jesus out of teaching situations because of 
they're, they're just not sure that he is who he says that he is. Uh, and then something changes for James. And James goes from being skeptical of Jesus to after the resurrection, after Jesus comes back to life, all of a sudden, James no longer just describes himself as like, oh yeah, that's my older brother. He describes himself and his other brother Jude also describes himself as, as a servant of Jesus the Christ, the promised king. And so James totally turns around his life. He becomes a, a leader in the church of Jerusalem uh, in the very beginning of the, the movement of Jesus. And he becomes kind of like a, a pastor doing a lot of kind of what we're doing right now where he would get up in front of a group of people and he would teach them uh, what he heard his brother teaching. Because as much as he was skeptical, it would be hard to kind of escape Jesus' teaching if you were his brother. And so he's passing on a lot of that teaching and then the world changes, and the people that he was teaching, they, they scatter all around the Roman world because of persecution, because of economic influences. They go from all being in Jerusalem to being everywhere. And so James is writing this book, probably the first book timeline-wise written in the New Testament. And so the first thing that we have written down by the early church, and James is writing to these people that he once knew, that he used to do life with side by side every day, day in and day out, and he's writing to them, trying to encourage them. Because for a lot of them, they went from doing life together, close together, around each other all the the time to being scattered, and now many of them being surrounded by people who aren't living the way that, that they feel called to live, right? They're in a culture that sees life very differently than they see life. They're trying to live for Jesus, and the people around them are living for themselves and are following these other gods and these other ways of living, and the pressure is kind of pushing in. And I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of times in our world right now, if you're someone who's trying to live for Jesus, those same pressures still feel like they exist, right? Maybe you're walking around Simi High School, and it feels like, like you and just a handful of people are the ones who really care about following Jesus, and that everybody else in your Spanish class couldn't, like, couldn't give a rip, right? Or everyone else on the baseball team or wherever, wherever it is that just feels like everybody is pushing in on you, right? Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's on your block. Maybe it's even in your family that you feel like everyone else has a different way of living. And so today we're going to look at what some of, what some of James's encouragement to these people who he, he used to do life with hand in hand, what his encouragement is to them uh, as these pressures are starting to press in on their life. And so we're going to open up to James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn open there. It's always helpful to be able to see it for yourself in the, in the Bible that you're using. That way you can take any notes or highlight something or come back to it. That way you can call me out in case I'm making stuff up. Uh, and so make sure that, you know, if you have a Bible that you're bringing with you, it's super helpful to be able to be doing that. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And so evidently, the people that James is writing to uh, they've been fighting with each other, right? They, maybe they used to be getting along, but now there's more division popping up. It says, don't, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He's saying, hey, you have conflict between each other because of your own, the, the sinful desires that you have. And he's going to kind of unpack a little bit more of that. He says, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. It's probably, it's probably speaking Hypothetically, I feel like if they were actually like stabbing each other in their church meetings, he'd have addressed that earlier in the letter. But he's saying like, hey, you're, you're fighting with each other. You don't have something. You want to have something. And so you're, you're lashing out and you're destroying somebody else because they have what you don't want. 
or they have something that you want that you don't have. You covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. He says, you're, you're fighting because you don't have the things that you want, but you're not even asking God for those things that you want. Instead, you're fighting with each other about those things. And so maybe someone else has a nicer house, and so now you're trying to tear that person down. Someone else has a nicer life, and so you're trying to tear them down. Someone else has nicer food or a nicer donkey, and you're trying to fight with them to tear them down. And instead of just taking your request to God in the first place. And I think this is a good reminder for us. This isn't going to be the, the center point of what we're looking at in this. But as we see a lot of times with James, there's just these little nuggets of wisdom all over the place. Sometimes we really want something in our life and we turn to every other direction than taking that desire to God. Right? We, we really want to feel valued, and so we turn around and try to find that anywhere else, but we forget to take it to God. We really want uh, a lack of anxiety in our life to feel like our, our future is going to be secure, and so we turn to everything that we can control instead of taking that to God. Uh, maybe there's just an, an, a thing, just a physical thing that we want, and we'll do everything we can in order to have that, but we don't Take the time to even talk to God about that desire, to bring that to him. And so James is like, hey, you guys don't have these things because you're not asking. You're not asking God for them. And then, I, lo I love where this goes after this. He's like, when you ask, you don't get it, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's like, hey, well, when you do then go and talk to God and you do ask him for stuff, it's like you guys are, are asking for riches so that you can make your life better. It's like you, you guys, have, you're still missing it. Jesus has come and he has saved you and he has changed your life and he has given you everything, all the riches of heaven in himself and you're praying and asking God just for stuff so you can spend it on yourself. Like Jesus has given himself for you but you're just still praying for these selfish things that you want just so that your life can be more comfortable and so that your pleasures can be met. It's like that. Your, your motives are still the motives of the culture and the world around you. It's still these selfish motives. And then in verse four, it's gonna get serious. He's like, you, you adulterous people. Now at first you would, you would think maybe he's like, calling out actual adultery, right? Cheating on their wives. But what James is doing is he's, he's calling back to, to the way the Old Testament would frequently call out God's people who would one day be worshiping Yahweh in his temple, be worshiping God, the Lord in his temple. And then the next day, they'd be going and offering sacrifices to the Canaanite gods, to Asherah and Baal and all these other gods that are around them. And then they'd come back again and they would worship the Lord. And they would wonder, why is the Lord not paying attention to us? Why doesn't he bless us? And meanwhile, they're spreading it around. And constantly, God would send prophets to them and, and he would warn them with this phrase. He would be like, you're like an adulterous people. You're supposed to be my people and worship me alone. And instead, you're spreading it around. And so James is calling back this, this old way that God would refer to this practice. And he's, he's laying that at the feet of his friends who he used to do ministry side by side with. And he's warning them. He's saying, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
So don't you know that, that being an ally with the world and the way that it sees things and the way that it does things is like being God's enemy. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I think an important thing to highlight here is the way that James is using this word friend isn't, doesn't mean like being kind to or hanging out with or even loving someone, but it's, it's truly that idea of, of being someone's ally, of being aligned with them, of having their back and fighting for, for their ways. He's saying, hey, if, if you're going to be living the way that the world lives, that inherently means that you're living the opposite kind of life that God has made possible. And then in verse 5, he says, Or do you not think, Scripture says, without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? In other words, that, that God desires our focus and our attention uh, purely and only, that, that we would be focused on him and not the other things of this world, that we wouldn't be holding other things as equal with him, that we wouldn't be chasing other things, that he wants us to know him because he knows that he is the best thing out there, and that the best thing that we could be paying our attention to, the best thing that we could be worshiping, that he's trying to draw our attention in. And then verse six, it says, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And so there are a couple things that I want to pull out of this passage because I think there's some important things for us to catch here. Even though our world 2,000 years later is so drastically different in so many ways, some of the same pressures that were there for James' original audience I think exist for us the same way too. And so the first thing that I want to pull out that's there on your note sheet is this, is that you can't play both sides. You can't play both sides. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we can't live completely for God and at the same time absorb some of the ways that the world does things that we maybe would like. That, that those things are at odds. That unlike peanut butter and jelly that mix really well, it's not just finding things that mix well. It's, instead, it's like going two opposite directions. It would be like saying that you're rooting for both Russia and Ukraine in the current war that's going on, right? Someone would look at you like with well, just a strange look, like you can't, I mean, they're not both going to win. What do you, I mean, they might both lose, but they're probably not both going to win. Like, which, what are you even talking about? That when it comes to our relationship with God and how we live our lives, we cannot live in a way that both honors and follows after God and yet absorbs and follows the patterns of this world. The people James is writing to are trying to live a life for Jesus, but they're also trying to live like the world around them. In their case, and we saw this earlier in chapter three, two, a couple weeks ago, that means taking selfishness and pride uh, and seeing those things as good. The world that they were living in, the Roman world, saw, saw living for yourself, saw selfishness as something that was not just like an okay thing, not just a normal thing. They saw it as a good thing, something that, that people should be doing. And so the people around that James is writing to, right, they're living in this culture. And so even when they're praying and asking God for things, they're praying these selfish prayers, not just because they haven't grown to move past that, but because they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's good to want more for myself. It's good to hoard more for myself, to try to bring in more for myself. I, I want more for me. 
And James is quick to make it clear that those values are against who Jesus is and who he's called us to be, that you can't live a life for Jesus and also a life exactly like the broken world that Jesus came to save us out of. And Jesus makes this clear also in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, 24, this is what Jesus says. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus gives a very specific example. He says, hey, you, you can't serve both God and money. Jesus says, hey, you can't serve two masters. If you try to make two things the top priority in your life, they're constantly going to be at odds. They're going to be pulling you in different directions. And so Jesus' example, instead of pride and selfishness, he uses money. And how many of us would look around maybe in the U.S. and see people who, are, who would say that they're Christians and yet live their life constantly on a day-in and day-out basis as if money and stuff was actually the thing that was going to bring them fulfillment and happiness. Right? Jesus says that that's not going to work. That's going to distract you from what's most important. John also warns us of the tension between loving God and loving the world. In, John, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father isn't in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So as followers of Jesus, we believe that he's radically changed our lives. That he's forgiven us from our sin. That we have a new relationship with God. That there's a new way of living that we've been given access to, that we have new values, a new heart, the Bible talks it, new character, a new compass for what's right and wrong, for what's good and beautiful, for what's evil and ugly. And so it doesn't make sense to embrace the new way that Jesus has given us, but also to try to hold on to the old at the same time. And so some examples that maybe uh, hit a little bit closer to home for us. Jesus has given us a new value for people, that we see people as created in God's image, that every single person who exists is someone who is valuable, and that value exists inside of them, but it comes from the creator and the God who made them. And yet a lot of times, people who would hold to that and say that that's true would still hold on to something like pornography that uses people like they're an object, that uses people as if they're just something for which I can view and get my own gratification for and then toss away. Through Jesus, we're given access to a relationship with God and we're allowed to have a, a new trust in him that God will provide for us, that our future is in God's hands. And yet how many of us are racked with anxiety over our future and search for every way that we can find to control it. Every little detail, every little test, every little aspect of things that we can control. Right? We, we have this new ability to trust God and yet we're still stuck in an old pattern of worrying 
about the things that we're not in control of. We've been given a new identity in Jesus as God's children, people who are beloved by the creator of the universe. And yet, with this new identity and this new value that we find, we still stress out over our physical appearance and we define ourselves by the opinions of other people. And we spend our time concerned, more concerned with how other people see us instead of leaning in to the new life that Jesus has made possible to know that we have a value that comes from something far greater than anyone else could ever take away by their opinion of us. These are areas where all of us can grow in, right? Areas where all of us are kind of like slipping a little bit in and out of being able to fully take hold of what Jesus has given us. And yet, in some of these areas, we need to be careful that we haven't just fully given over into the way that the world works, that we haven't totally just absorbed the way that the world sees things, that we're not completely trying to live as if those are the most important things, as if money is the thing that's to be chased, as if our future is the thing that's, that needs to be in our control, that we haven't totally given over to worry as if it's something that's good and right, that something's wrong if we're not worrying about stuff, that we're not living for our, our image before we're living for Jesus because he's given us a new perspective. But with this new perspective comes a very real threat. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Living for Jesus comes with the pressure of upsetting the people around us. Because living for Jesus inherently is going to set us apart. And there are going to be times when we might not even mean to be set apart. But because we choose not to partake in a conversation, because we choose not to be present at a party, because we choose not to drink something or smoke something that's being passed around, because we choose to try to redirect the conversation from somewhere that that we can tell that it's going for whatever the reason, a decision of something we choose to do or not to do, it's going to rub people the wrong way. And it might not always make a whole lot of sense because in a world like ours, there's people who choose to make all sorts of different decisions. There are people who are living all sorts of different lives with all sorts of different values. And yet, for whatever reason, sometimes it feels like as a a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, when we make those decisions to put him first, we can notice it rubs people the wrong way. And a lot of times it's because of exactly what Jesus said, is that, that when we live for him, it's like we become a light. We become little reflections of his light. And I don't know if you've ever been, like, dead asleep in a dark room. Let's say it's it's Sunday you were, you were at church on Saturday night. You don't have to be anywhere. You're like, oh, it's great. It's Sunday. It's the weekend. I get to sleep as long as I want. And you forgot that you had promised your parents you were going to do some chore. You're going to rake the lawn, mow the lawn, um, wash the dog. I don't know what it is, right? And, and someone, mom comes in the room, flips on that light. Ooh, what, what does that feel like when you've been in, when you've been in the dark and all of a sudden, those shades are just whoosh, 
ripped open, the sunlight comes pouring in on your face. Does that feel good? No, no. Do we need light in our life? Yes. When you've been living in the dark for a long time, does a bright light sometimes upset you before you get used to it? There's going to be times when simply making a good decision is going to feel like to the people around us like we're shining a light in their face. Not because we're intending to, not because we're coming at them with judgment, not because we're shaking a finger at them, but because they know that they weren't going to make that decision. They were going to make fun of that person. They were going to go get drunk. They were going to decide that, man, the, the best way to pass time, the best way to feel better was going to be getting high. And you making the decision not to do that thing or go do something else instead rubs the wrong way. And sometimes that's the beginning of the process for them seeing that they need something bigger, a bigger hope, a greater goodness than they have available. But we also know that just like Jesus said, that the world hated him. And so if, if we reject the way of the world and we live for the way of Jesus, there are going to be times where we're hated simply for doing that. And that pressure isn't something new, which leads me to our next fill-in. And a strange word that you're going to have to try to figure out how to spell. It's good times. It'll be up on the screen, but even still, you're going to have to watch carefully. The next fill-in is this, is that syncretism is an old but ongoing problem. Thanks, Joey. Joey's like, oh, yes, good word, yes. Syncretism is an old but ongoing problem. Syncretism is a really weird word. It's not one that you ever really hear. Syncretism is, is when you mix God's ways with the ways of the world. Now, that could be mixing Christianity with another religion, right? People who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian, but I'm also Buddhist, or I'm Christian, but I also use crystals for healing, or I'm Christian, but I also do a little bit of witchcraft on the side. Like, all, all, those would be, like, official like examples of syncretism, where you're taking one religion and mixing it with another religion. And we'll look a little bit at some Old Testament examples where God's people would do that. But it could also be just mixing God's principles with the principles of the world, taking the things that God has led us to and, and mixing those things with the way that people in the world do things. And that could be, and we'll see a couple of examples of that too that I think are really prevalent that pull at different people who are here in this room right now. Because I think all of us in this room have a pull towards one sort of this or another. Uh, and it's easy to feel like the one that we're pulled towards isn't the worldly option. Um, we see this all over in the Old Testament. Uh, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah is going up and challenging the people of Israel. And it says this in verse 21. It says, Elijah went up before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. Right? And so that's, that's the danger, is that we would be presented with this option of, hey, if, if Jesus is God, and if he is wise, and if he loves you, and he knows everything, and he said this is the best way to live, then why do we keep thinking that these other things are also good options. And then when we're presented with that, 
we stop and we stare and we shrug and we don't change anything. Continues in our day too, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is a way of saying like, Good, true, biblical teaching, like what is actually true. It says people won't put up with real, true teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, right back to what James was talking about, that so many of the problems that we have have to do with our sinful desires. It says to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. People love to find teachers or influencers or voices or authors who can tell them what they want to hear. So I want to give you guys two examples that I've seen in like the social media sphere gaining traction. And when you really look at these two movements, like their churches and their gatherings aren't really like growing in massive numbers. But when you look at their numbers on like social media and people who are listening to them, it really comes up. So now if you're like totally plugged in to like car TikTok or fashion TikTok, like these things probably aren't coming up because the algorithm's like, you're not gonna wanna be interested in this anyway. But if you're like sort of into like any of the like Christian teen TikTok stuff that comes up. And what you know, like, sometimes they're just like, oh, your geolocation had you at the church on a Saturday night. We're just going to try tossing this to you one time. Like, every once in a while, you'll just get things where you're like, how did they know that I was close to a target? Um, Some of these things might come up. So you may have never encountered some of this stuff, or some of this might sound familiar. But I just want to flag two things that, that keep coming up. They feel like they're polar opposites of each other. But really... They're both ways that people take the teachings of Jesus and mix them with the teaching of the world. Uh, The first, I'll call, and they would call themselves, uh, progressive Christians or progressive Christianity. And so progressive Christianity is, takes the love of God and wants to make that so big that you walk away from anything the Bible teaches. So progressive Christianity treats the Bible as if it isn't trustworthy. And oftentimes they'll teach that what God thinks is good is really what we think is good. And amazingly, all the things that are good are the things that people in the 21st century in the United States also think are good. And it tends to to be a, a very... On the, on the face of it, very warm and welcoming, but without any holding to anything that is true. Christianity with no power to change life, because why does your life need to change? And so it's a very empty thing in the long run, because it's not going to point you towards any growth or to a Jesus who came to really save you from anything because we're all really okay in the end. But a lot of times they'll point towards anything that the Bible would say as calling out things as sin, as old and antiquated. 
And so it's a way of taking the values of the world that maybe wants to accept and affirm everything that people do and every desire that people have and try to find a way to still marry that with Jesus in some way. And you lose the power and the life change potential. The other side of the spectrum that I also want to highlight is what I would call, but they wouldn't call, uh, aggressive Christianity. So you have progressive Christianity on one side and you have aggressive Christianity on the other. And so that side would say that it believes all of the Christian values and the Bible is incredibly important, right? These people are oftentimes big on things like pro-life and sexual purity, which are, are good things, but they exhibit no grace or love or gentleness, right? Lots of truth, no fruit. And so they've embraced the aggressive, forceful way of the world to get a point across, and they've made that their strategy to try to move truth forward, but in the process, they've given up who Jesus has really called them to be. And many times they're confused about why that's not working, Right? And maybe it's because they've walked away from the core of what Jesus has called them to, which is to change who they are on the inside before they go out trying to make people do the right thing. And so over the last few years, you've seen both sides kind of grow in prominence over social media. They would see themselves as each other's natural enemies. They, like, they hate each other. But both are ways that people take what Jesus has taught and mix in worldly things in the mix. And I think there are both things that some of us are drawn towards. Some of us in this room don't want to have conflict with anybody and would love to tell everybody that they're fine just how they are. And we're going to be drawn towards a version of Christianity that kind of pulls out any mention of sin and evil. And in the process, we're going to miss out on the hope that God wants to change us into something better. And that God has loved us in spite of what's wrong with us, not that God has loved us by saying that we're fine. And then others of us in this room, we're more prone to wanting conflict with other people and to try to find a version of Christianity that says it's okay for us to be aggressive and to fight with people the way that we want to, to say that other people are wrong because it makes us feel more secure about ourselves. And so we need to be careful that we're not slipping into either, that we're not taking the world's viewpoints and absorbing that into what Jesus has called us to live out. Because Jesus is the only place that we will find hope, and he's the only place that we will find life. And we cannot decide that, yes, what Jesus said is true, and what he taught is true, but the way that Jesus lived isn't going to be for me. And we can't say, oh, I love how loving Jesus is, but I don't love the things that he said, and so I'm going to soften those because I like the love side. We need to recognize that the truth that Jesus came to teach us goes hand in hand with the love that he had. That the truth that he came with is because he loved us. And that we're not able to separate his truth and love. There are a couple questions, two important things I want to leave you with uh, as we get ready to end in some worship. And those two questions are this. The first is, is where have you compromised? Because I think for, for all of us, the, the pull towards 
syncretism, the, the pull towards wanting to, to take a little bit of the way the world values things and work that into our walk with Jesus, uh, that pull can be really strong. And I know that some of you in this room right now, there are probably ways that you're literally, you know that you're living one foot in and one foot out. That might be that you had a great time at winter camp and you enjoy going to your life group you kind of like what Jesus has laid out for you, but you don't really want to give up that relationship with someone that you know you're not, that's not the right thing for you right now. Uh, for, for some of us, it might be that we, we come to a place like this and we're a certain kind of person, but then when we're at home, we treat our parents absolutely terribly. And we know that that's at odds with what God would call us to but we don't want to change that. For some of us, we live the double life of doing the church thing on Saturdays and Wednesdays and doing the partying thing on Thursdays and Fridays. And I just want, I want to warn you that that mixing never goes well. And when we're doing that intentionally, when we know we're splitting time between Jesus and things that are the opposite of him, at some point, He'll come calling to get our attention. And it might be in a room like this where we're like, oh, okay, maybe I should change that around. Or it might be by him allowing the natural consequences of the decisions that we're making to start showing up. And so it's important that we look at our lives and make sure we're not making those mistakes. But also for others of us, man, there are times when we just, we've absorbed the way the world views life and we've let that become a part of how we see things. In the main service right now, we're in this series looking at worldviews, talking about how there's these different ways that we can see the world, and how frequently, even though there's a, a way that the Bible sees things, we also kind of can end up seeing things the way that the world around us has taught us the whole time we've been growing up. And that can happen to us too, where we absorb the things that are going on around. And so maybe that's the happily ever after narrative that's existed since we were tiny, right? That my lock screen on my phone, my screensaver that we're talking about is a picture of me and the kids at Disneyland um, on the worst ride there, small world. Um, yeah, it's terrible, but it's fine. I know, some people love it. That song never leaves my brain. Um, right, maybe it's that, that Disney happily ever after, and and you see being in a relationship as your, your ultimate goal, the thing that you don't have, the thing that you need, right? And that's, that's something that has sort of absorbed in from the world. Maybe it's that, that you see the, the approval of other people as something that you're constantly chasing and something that's worth compromising for so that you can get people to laugh or that you can get people to pay attention or so that you can get people to follow you. We also need to be careful to make sure that, that we check our lives constantly, that we're not living for something else other than Jesus, that we haven't lifted something else up to that level. And then the last question is, how can you reach out but not sell out? How can you reach out but not sell out? Because James, and we've looked at John, I've talked a lot about the dangers of being an ally with the world, or being enraptured with, falling in love with the way the world does things. But the ultimate truth is, right, that Jesus came because God loves the world, because God loves us. 
not because he loved the way we were doing things, because he knew we needed to be saved out of that. And he's given us the job of rescuing people by letting them know about him. But if we think that the way everything in the world happens is just fine, it becomes really hard to offer any hope to people who could find that in Jesus. But the danger is that we would get so worried about the way the world sees things that we lock ourselves behind a steel door and never have any relationships with people who need that hope too. And so we need to do our best to live as people who are in the world but aren't people who are of the world, who see the hope of Jesus as something worth offering to others but not something worth giving up for approval or to feel better about ourselves. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to go into a time of worship. Uh, And one thing I just want to encourage you with um, is that with all of the things that are around us and all the pressures that are pushing in and all the different things that want to compete for our attention, that there is one thing, one person who is truly worth it. Jesus has made possible a totally different way of living for us, a totally different type of relationship with God, a totally different set of values and a very different way of seeing ourselves. And that we run the risk, if we're going to mix the way the world sees in with our following Jesus, we run the risk of losing out on the things that he has given us, of losing out on the life that he wants to give us, losing out on the the new identity and the new way of seeing ourselves and, and giving that up for more anxiety and for trying to control things that we can't, and for trying to win the approval of people who don't matter and for chasing pleasure at the bottom of empty wells. And instead of doing that, our choice, the choice that's laid in front of us, is to pick one option or the other and to really ask ourselves, where do we think life is found? Do we think that life is truly found in Jesus? Or do we think that there's a better life to be had apart from him? And so the thing that I would really want to challenge you with, and I think there are probably many high school students at our church who are still in the middle of making this decision, right, is that it's, it's important to make that decision for yourself at some point. Because a lot of us are here because someone in our family has brought us here. And at some point, we're all going to be faced with that decision of which do we think is actually better. What I would contend for, and what many in this room would point you towards, is that Jesus' way is really, truly the trustworthy way to life. That giving over control of your life to him is how we find new life to begin with. Jesus, we thank you for your your death and your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you that you gave up everything. You gave up your life. You gave up your position in heaven. And you gave that up so that we could have a relationship with you. And thank you for dying in my place and taking my evil, my sin on your shoulders and raising to new life. 
I pray, God, that we would choose to live in that now, that we wouldn't see that as simply a promise for the future, but that it would mean both a secure future in you and a new way to live today. Would we make those decisions and find in this community a group of people who would support us in making those hard choices? In Jesus' name, amen.